this episode will share personal moments of connection and deeply felt experiences. If anything you hear has a triggering effect, please reach out to someone who can help keep you safe. Or remember, you can call Lifeline at any time on 13114. You can also call Beyond Blue at 1300 22 46 36. Something in my brain just clicked and just said, actually, why are, you know, if you really, really don't want to die, you can pause now, you know, like this is, this is your, this is your time that you can intervene. Otherwise, you know, I don't think there is as much option to intervene um, past this point. And so that's where I ultimately just said, no, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to live. I, I want to live. And so that was me calling the ambulance. I'm Jason. And I'm Maddie. And this is Making Sense of Chaos. A podcast about death and dying, love, grief and hope. On our show, we talk to all kinds of people who through various trajectories have found themselves trying to explain the unexplainable. Trying to accept the unacceptable. Trying to make sense of chaos. Peter, welcome. Let's start by you telling us who you are. Yeah, sure. Uh, I suppose mid-30s, going on to late 30s, uh, mum and wife and live in Brisbane. Uh, My main role that I work in is I have my own business, which is From Me To You Consulting, and I work as a mental health advocate and a mental health first aid instructor and also a mental health workplace trainer and consultant as well. Uh, I also work for Mental Health First Aid Australia as an instructor development advisor. So uh, we really focus on instructor accreditation and quality and making sure that everyone's kind of keeping up with the latest trends and, um, you know, really sort of seeking out knowledge and things like that as well and supporting instructors to facilitate courses across the country. Wow, that's incredible. So, Peter, mental health is obviously a huge professional um, interest of yours. But what about the personal side? So where does that come into things? Where's your personal connection to mental health coming from? Yeah, so I grew up very much in that um, mental health space. So my father is a registered mental health nurse and, and my mother is an aged care nurse. And and I grew up back in the day where instead of uh, having, you know, a babysitter or, or being taken to daycare, if my parents were working shift work and particularly if it was a weekend, I used to just go to work with them. So, <laughs> so I spent a lot of time um, as a kid on both of my parents' wards. And so, yeah, I grew up in that environment and I guess, you know, my lived experience of mental illness and suicide, you know, started, I can't remember when it wasn't there, but from day dot, I assume as soon as I came out or even before I came out, um, my earliest childhood memories, you know, I've, hindsight's a very convenient thing that I can look back now and be able to kind of 
confirmed that a lot of those memories were, you know, really quite severe anxiety at a very young age and childhood anxiety. And yeah, and that just kind of grew and grew, I guess, through my teens and mixed episodes of depression and, um, you know, university was, you know, the best and worst time of my life uh, in terms of, you know, meeting new people and being inspired and loving it. But ultimately, uh, it was that kind of crossroads between university and working professionally that, yeah, I, I, that was when I started to get really, really suicidal, even though, you know, I had a long history of suicidal thoughts in that I had my first suicidal thought when I was 11 years old. And it wasn't an it wasn't until I was uh, 22 that I did actually attempt to take my life. And Peter, so 11 years old and you've mentioned from the time that you remember that that was, that was present. Mm. How, how intense were they? Were they, were, did, did they come up at certain times or was it, was it, a particular event or was this related to a prolonged period of you mentioned childhood anxiety what what's your sort of understanding of the yeah yeah so I mean I guess my childhood anxiety presented in a way that you know uh, was written off as just being a kid and having an overactive imagination and very severe nightmares and you know, waking up in fright and weird little phobias and quirks about things. And they're very, very easy when a child's younger just to be able to write them off as something to do with personality and behaviour. And I'm a very creative person, lots of writing, and I get very engaged in film and TV shows. So, you know, all that kind of led into that. Uh, So all those sorts of things, um, you know, weird little phobic like behaviours or anxieties about things. But uh, I guess the the suicidal thoughts kind of came out of the middle of nowhere, and I can really, really clearly remember having that my first um, suicidal thought, just walking down the street with my mum, and and me not knowing anything different, repeated it to my mother because I just was like, wow, that was really odd that that would come into my head, and you know, child, year six, you know, and uh, she was, you know, quite concerned and quite alarmed that I had that thought but she did well not to necessarily portray that to me in response and said oh that's you know that's a big thing to be thinking maybe you should talk to you know some I used to go to a youth group that afternoon and she said maybe have a chat with one of the you know the youth workers there about that just to see what they have to say and I can, and that was my full intention, but sadly I actually fell over that afternoon and ended up fracturing my thigh in about eight places. So that sort of took um, precedence over at that time. Um, but I did have those suicidal thoughts start to return to me when I was in hospital. And so it was uh, during um, my time in hospital that I spoke to my parents about it and quite quickly after I got out of hospital because I was in there for about seven weeks with that injury. I started seeing a, a child psychologist and yeah, actually a child psychiatrist, sorry, and started talking that through and continued to see that psychiatrist for a couple of years after that. Do you remember your first session with the psychologist? Um, yeah, I remember. Um, yeah, she was, I remember being in that session for the first time with my mother and father, uh, you know, as a bit of a family one. And 
and them kind of giving a little bit of a brief background about some of my childhood and things that I'd experienced and kind of, you know, awkwardly got around to how I'd how I'd spoken about suicide and I can remember feeling a little bit like an outsider <laughs> sitting there having my parents talk about it and just thinking wow this you know these suicidal thoughts are very out of the blue and and I can remember the psychiatrist specifically asking my parents does anyone else in the family you know are there any is there any family history of depression or anxiety or suicidal thoughts and and my mother said no at the same time that my father said yes and um and mum just sort of went what like you know just not thinking and she turned you know my dad said well your brother and you know peter he died by suicide and that was the first Mm. time that i had actually heard or knew that he had died by suicide because he had died at that point about six years prior and at that time, his his death was spoken about not as not as a suicide as something else, um, particularly with us, you know, children and cousins. So for the first time, I knew then that you know I, that it was something very much present in our family, and suicide had affected my family and particularly my grandmother hugely. Well, so. How did you compute that at the time? I mean, this is your first time hearing it in the <laughs> Spikes office. How did yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. I guess you know. I I think back now, and I think it was really, really confronting. You know, for my parents mm. to you know have to that you know my mother just didn't for so many for so many years. You know, you sort of start repeating a line that that's mm. that your brother dies a certain way that isn't suicide, and eventually you almost convince yourself of mm-hmm. that fact. And it's only been, you know, in the last couple of years that I talk very openly about about losing him to suicide and, and that, you know, journey and stuff like that. And it's been very healing for her to be able to hear, you know, his name mentioned and spoken about and his life celebrated and, the, you know, the true cause of his death being spoken about as well. Yeah, wow. It's, it's amazing, you know, how that shift occurred um because you wonder what what else could have brought up that that shift in in conversation um did it have to be something tragic like you having suicidal thoughts to bring up that shift Mm. peter did you did you feel this is a bit of a strange question did you feel (laughs) did you feel um, i'm always the guy that asks weird questions that's okay that's all um did you feel at so at that age did you feel it one? Did you feel like those suicidal thoughts were independent to you, or did you feel? Yeah, I, I, I guess um, they felt like a foreign entity to me at that time. They didn't necessarily feel like they were my voice or what I was mm. thinking or what I, you know, my thoughts were, uh, because I mean, I probably wasn't. I, I, I didn't feel depressed. You know, I didn't know what depression was at that point. Um, I still would possibly say that they probably weren't in response to depression. Uh, They were most likely in response to the anxiety that I experienced. And, you know, as we know, suicidal thoughts can exist without those either. So it's just something chemically that my brain did. Uh, I think it was, you know, something that my brain did as a bit of a, I'd say almost obsessive thinking 
that it was more that because there wasn't necessarily the intent behind them that I wanted to die. It was more of a disturbing thought process. So I'd say it was more kind of that thinking and, you know, you think about the a child at the age of 11 or 12 and they're starting to get more exposed to certain things. They're starting to get more exposed to violence um, in television and just in conversations. And so I think the brain starts to take in new content and, and it, you know, twists it all together and interrelates it all together. And uh, so it gives your brain more content and data and creativity to work with. And I already had a very, you know, creative and, you know, big imagination. So it just ran with it completely. But I remember being, I remember feeling very disturbed by it. Um, and very, mm. it caused me a lot of anxiety and fret and definitely that idea, you know, um, not necessarily that I was being ta- taken over, but just that it was a very external or exterior entity and, and I didn't like it. And it disturbed me that it was in my mm. head. Yeah. Mm, mm. And, and, and the response to the, to the thoughts or to the, if they were external, was there dialogue going back the other way? Um, no, I'd say for me, you know, the content of those thoughts then was probably just a little bit more visual or what would happen if, the, if I did this or what happens here or what happens then. It wasn't, it, it wasn't so much that I would get into a dialogue, dialogue, sorry, or a conversation with them. Uh, and obviously, as we know, with obsessive thinking or thoughts, the harder that you try to suppress or push them mm. away, the more up to the surface that they come. Mm. And the more sort of distress uh, that you express, you know, the, the stronger that they get. Mm. And so really for me, it would just probably the depression came from the fact that I just felt sad that I was like, why, why would my brain do this to me? This isn't, this doesn't make me feel good or make me feel happy. Why would the, why would my brain put these ideas or messages in my head? So it's probably a real state of confusion. And, you know, back, back mm. in, you know, so we're talking the mid 1990s, we didn't talk about suicide at all. Like we talk about suicide now. So I didn't, I didn't have a concept of how those thoughts existed. I didn't have anything necessarily to compare it to, particularly in other kids my age, um, because it just, it was an unknown thing. Mm. Mm. Uh- I sometimes think you actually mentioned it um, just before around the link between the sort of a depressive cycle and, and, and suicidal thoughts. Well, what's your sort of view on suicidal thoughts being in some way a curious and creative mind? You, you mentioned that you, you're, you're yeah. quite creative and sort of moving away from those sort of you know, mental boundaries um, at such a young age, it just seems that you've, you sort of unleashed and, and went into a space that was, um, you know, as you said, it may have been learnt from many different factors, but it's, it does show a level of expansion in terms of, you know, where, where, your, mm. where your thoughts and consciousness yeah. do go. I, I think, you know, I, people will say to me, I just can't imagine ever thinking that way. I just can't ever imagine having that thought in my head of, you know, wanting to take my own life. And I quite point out to people and I go, every single person at some point in their life has thought about it. And it's briefly flicked through their brain. 
everyone's had that at some point. And I say the difference with people, you know, like myself who have lived with suicidal thoughts is that it doesn't end there, you know, like for people, it's a brief curiosity, a brief thought. They think about it for a little bit, but it just goes. But imagine that constantly and obsessively and intensively to the point that it impacts upon your ability to function, to sleep, to eat. I said, then you can get an idea about how, you know, how deeper, you know, a suicidal crisis is for someone. Do you think that um, this is either personal experience or from from what what you know? Do you do you think that the period from making from from an attempt to diminish all pain, there is a sense of I want to relieve this temporarily, and but in doing that, there's that rest that that that, that obviously life risk that that that's no longer temporary it's now that's it yeah i mean i can only talk from my own experience um because everyone's thought processes is you know hugely hugely different um from in my situation i you know mine was quite prolonged you know that i had my first suicidal thought when i was 11 and didn't act didn't attempt you know physically to attempt my you know to end my life until i was 22 and, you know, I did have those periods of suicide, you know, suicidal thoughts off and on during that point. But I guess for me, um, you know, it varies for each person. But from when I first expressed that I had a quite intense desire to die to a friend of mine uh, and until I did actually physically attempt was about six months. And in that time, I managed to kind of just get footholds and white knuckle it and kind of get through and day after day after day. And ultimately, what really led me, um, you know, to really kind of seal the deal, um, so to speak, was that I had sought sort of support from a few different friends, uh, people who I did think um, were really, you know, sort of um, good friends at that time. And the, and the la, one of the last things that one of the people said to me was saying, oh, well, um, that person has just had enough and they can't really take it anymore from, you know, from, from what you've been saying or doing and, and you've become quite a burden on them. Mm-hmm. And me hearing that was just like, because I had reiterated, I don't want to be a burden, I don't want to be a burden, I don't want to be a burden. So that was just my ticket. I heard that word and I just went, that's it thinking of my um, thoughts um, particularly for my attempt was that I was doing it for other people I wasn't doing it for myself Mm. and so I had to convince myself to say this is the best option this will be the one that will cause the least pain I'm in so much you know distress and pain myself so you know I don't see another way out but I haven't I've tried really hard for the last six months to get out of this and I can't and ultimately my what I'm doing is just bringing upon, you know, increased hardship and, and horrible things to other people. So I couldn't see another alternative. And so I was talking my way out, you know, just going, I have to do it. I have to do it the whole time. Just going, I don't want to, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And then it was ultimately that something in my brain just clicked and just said, actually, why are, you know, if you really, really don't want to die, you can pause now. You know, like this is this is your this is your time that you can intervene. Otherwise, you know, I don't think there is as much option to intervene mm. um, past this point. And so that's where I ultimately just said, no, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna live. 
I, I want to live. And so that was me calling the ambulance and, you know, and, and having to ask for help. It was the most difficult phone call I've ever, ever had to make in my whole entire life um, to say to an operator over the phone, you know. Um, but ultimately, I made that decision then. It took a very, very long time um, after that to kind of, you know, I, this is 15 years ago now and I can see and I can see it all very clearly and how it, how it built up. But at the time, I, I, you know, I couldn't as neatly kind of categorise everything that I was going through. And I was just very, very lucky that I had parents who really knew what they were doing and, you know, a father who worked in mental health who really knew what I needed and what evidence suggested that I needed. So I got in really quickly with a good psychologist and found medication that really suited me and started to talk things through and build a plan. Um, but, yeah, it was, you know, I would say it was a good, you know, five years or four years at least after that to when I actually started to, um, yeah, be well and be better and um, break down a lot of the kind of habits and patterns of thought that led me there in the first place. Peter, do you remember that split second when your mind changed and you said, actually, I don't want to do this? Um, Do you remember what was behind that? I remember it was like the most bluest day you know, like I remember the sky was just so, so blue. Like there was not a cloud in the sky. And I can remember just looking out the window and going, you know what, it's it's just too, you know, it's too blue. <laughs> like I was like, you know, I was just going, you know, it just doesn't seem right. Like I, you'd think that at least be cloud or a little bit of a drizzle or slightly overcast, you know. And, that, you know, like I, I can remember just going, yeah, like just, you know, and I can remember, you know, my dog um, and my cat were following me around and not leaving me alone. And I was just like, oh. Um, but I just remember thinking, I shouldn't be so upset about this that I've made this decision to die. Like I remember I was just going, um, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be so bothered by this. I should be relieved, you know, I've made my decision. But at the same time, I'm like, why am I having to talk myself into it so much? And I guess it just clicked so that I just went, actually, no. Um, this isn't, yeah, this, this, this isn't, this isn't what I want. And I'm so grateful now that I made that decision. And, you know, for the months after it, I was like, oh, you idiot, you know, because there were times where I would have been even more suicidal than what I was that morning. And that, you know, that I was just like, why didn't you go through with it? Why didn't you do it? And I tortured myself for months after that to saying, oh, if you had done that, then we wouldn't be in the situation we are now. Um, but you know, it's now that I can look back and go, yeah, like, you know, it, thank you. You know, I'm very, very grateful to myself that I, that I, you know, and very grateful and recognize the fact that lots of other people who have been in that situation haven't been able to make that decision either physically or mentally. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, very, very grateful and, and, and don't take for granted the fact that I was able to make that decision and that was still, still in my capacity to do so. And just going back, do you remember what it was like the day after it all? (laughs) It's like the word, you know, like it was, um, 
it's funny, it becomes a new normal. Like I can remember sitting, you know, in the ambulance on the way to the hospital and just thinking and saying to, and I never lost my sense of humour at any point. It's it stayed and it has, you know, it's, it's my biggest coping strategy. And I can remember saying, you know, making jokes with the ambulance and stuff like that and, and, and just going. And I said, you know, I've just, I guess I, I've made my decision that, you know, I'm, I'm sticking put, you know, I'm staying. And I kind of, you know, started talking to myself like that. But I can remember feeling so much stigma and so much shame. And some of it was directed at me, sadly, by the medical staff, you know, mm-hmm. that were at the hospital um, mm-hmm. in, the, in the short, you know, period um, after I was hospitalised. Um, but, you know, a lot of it was self-stigma as well. And I can remember in particular that there was a woman across from me in the bed at the emergency department who was um, ill with cancer. I, I can't remember if it was terminal or not. And she had been brought in, I think, during her son's wedding reception and the family were coming in and showing some photos. And I can remember so much that she was talking about, you know, oh, this is so lovely that I got to see this. And so, you know, and I remember just being there and thinking I was the shittest human being in the world. It was like, here am I who's actively tried to end my own life in the last 24 hours. And here is someone who's trying to prolong their life, you know. And that real, it was a huge philosophical debate, you know, going on in my head, like, how, how is this, you know? I can remember another time when I was pregnant with Bowie, my son, and I was probably about a couple of weeks off popping him out. And I can remember sitting at a bus stop and this woman started talking to me and saying how she'd been diagnosed, uh, you know, with cancer. And, you know, and she was seeking treatment and she was telling me about when her twins were born and she was hoping to still be around for their 21st birthdays and was talking about that. And I can remember the difference in how I took that information on and I found that as a very like, wow, you know, like, you know, I sort of was like, yeah, life, you know, life is good. Um, You know, I, you know, this is about, you know, but, there was no sense. So it's, it's interesting that those two things happened at very kind of mm. interesting points of my life that I was able to go, you know, um, re, you know, react like that. And I go, it was like a little bit of a, you know, I'm not a huge spiritual or religious person. I was like, it was a little bit of a kind of thing for me that I just went just to give that person that comfort at that time to say, yeah, you know, um, but mm. be okay with myself and who I was at that time. And, and, and and back then as well, um, I was back at work within two days. Um, didn't didn't tell anyone why, <laughs> you know. Um, I I had missed a, you know a, a few days of work. Um, yeah, just kind of I kind of got on with things. And for most people who knew me, um, they didn't know about my you know, lived experience of suicide until it started coming out on, you know, national TV (laughs) and national radio and newspapers quite a long time afterwards. So for a lot of people, particularly in those few, you know, days and weeks after it went national, you know, I was getting lots of messages from people who who were just flabbergasted because it wasn't something that I introduced myself as when I met people or, you know, I didn't say, hi, my name's Heather, I attempted suicide on such and such, you know. And, um, and yeah, it was interesting. Like a lot of people still did have those very stigmatizing views because they're like, Oh, you're not like that. You're not, 
you know, I would not put you in that category or think of you as that. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think it was a way of showing to people, well, yeah, it, it can be anyone and it has been anyone. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's funny because, you know, what grabbed me when you were talking about that um, guilt, I guess, that you were experiencing in the hospital when you were looking at someone who was trying to prolong her life and you tried to take your life and, and almost, um, you know, putting yourself into that, that resentment just shows how we value physical manifestations of pain in a different way to the way that we value mental um, anguish. And, 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 of course, like, um, they're both the same. We know that. But there's still that pervasive stigma, even self-stigma, up to your own suicide attempt yeah and I think that was the thing was that so much of mine was about being a burden to other people and you know and it's still a recurrent thing in my life now like you know it's something my anxiety and depression you know it's my lifelong companion yeah uh, my lifelong baggage and you know the way it looks and how I carry it and um, how it rolls alongside me has changed throughout my life um, but they're still recurrent themes and issues and things that I've had to deal with. And I still, you know, I still really fear that idea of, you know, thinking, you know, being a burden and, and stuff like that. So, you know, it's, it, it's, and you never, you only can change how you respond to those thoughts or, and how, and how you talk about it with your loved ones. And the big key thing for me has been who I surround myself with mm. and, Know who my relationships are and who my connections are and I've really learnt that whole quality over quantity. Mm-hmm. I guess the question I wanted to end with, um, and you probably get asked this all the time, so I'm sorry, but I do oh, have no, to okay. ask it. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, so, you know, um, let's say someone listening to the podcast um, is experiencing suicidal thoughts. Mm-hmm. What would be your advice? I would just acknowledge the fact that it's an absolute shit place to be in, you know, like undeniably shit and horrible. And, you know, to really say, you know, you know, no one can diminish or, you know, dispute the the feeling of being through that. Um, but to say, you know, to genuinely say to that person that is hard and as shit and as awful and as dark, you know, as it seems at that time, that there there is someone who will always listen. Mm. The person, you know, who will listen might not necessarily be your closest family or friend. It may be a stranger that you need to reach out, but it's the hardest bit is is reaching out and, and talking and it gets easier eventually and easier and easier. And, you know, it's like the shampoo ads. It won't happen overnight, but it will happen, you know. Yeah. Um, and not to deny the fact that it is an up and down roller coaster. You know, it's not a Hallmark commercial, you know, or a card. It's not like, oh, hey, life, yeah. you know. Woo-hoo! <laughs> um, but, yeah. But ultimately, you know, my biggest thing, my key message that I really want to communicate and my life's purpose is to say that there is joy in life. Yeah. You know, that is my key thing. And, you know, that I was in that really, really dark place where I didn't think that there was joy in living. 
but it was just by, you know, just pausing for a minute and just going, okay, listen to myself, talk to myself, you know, what, what around me gives me the slightest bit of hope. And for me, it was that that sky was ridiculously blue that day and that the dog wouldn't leave me alone and the cat was following me. And then that just kind of was that intervention at that time that I needed. And there were lots of things that happened after my suicide attempt that were worse and could, you know, really made me go, actually, had that happened then, I probably wouldn't be here. But it was just that faith, you know. Um, I I don't, I'm not a religious person. Um, but I really came to kind of get that huge faith that no matter that every day offers us an opportunity to have a laugh at something, you know, no matter how shit and horrible that day is, there's something that can happen that you can have a laugh about. And, and as long as I've had a laugh each day, I've kept going. So that's been my big thing that I've, you know, that I've kept going, you know, doing that as well. Thank you so much, Peter. My pleasure. Such an incredible conversation. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, my my pleasure. I hope that hope that it's helpful and you could make some sense out of all my waffling. Hundred percent. I do that. Too much sense. <laughs> that was making sense of chaos. A podcast about death, dying, love, grief and hope. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.